Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Indeed it is. And you know what? I love it when we do feminist faves for all the obvious reasons that we always talk about. Uh, But when you go first, typically I like going first, but there is something kind of nice when you go first and I can just be like... I don't have my notes up. Yeah. I'm just like relax. See, that's how I feel about going second because I like it, especially if we have like some wine or alcohol. Oh, yeah. Because you're doing all the talking for the first half. And then when you're talking, I can just like start drinking. Yeah. No, <laughs> and I don't sure. have to think about reading any notes or anything. I can just respond to whatever yeah. you say. You know, generally, I prefer to go first as well. Like I'm like, get it out of the way. And then yeah. you can just relax for the rest of it. But it's also kind of nice to be like, oh, we can just ease into this episode. Yeah, especially you know? because you're feeling a little tired tonight. I'm so tired. Listen to a story first. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's like story time. It is story time. So the woman I'm going to be talking about this week is Yoko Ono. And the reason for that is one, I am a ginormous Beatles fan and the topic of Yoko Ono has been something that I have fought over with people a lot in my life um, because of how I view her and things like that in a more positive light and I also thought about discussing her now because the Beatles documentary series Mm -hmm. Get Back came out of Disney Plus and people are starting to have a very different perspective of the last you know, year of the Beatles being together. And it's really shown a light on who Yoko Ono was as a person and her relationship with the band. And people are starting to realize that maybe they shouldn't have been so hard on her. So I wanted to teach you all a little bit more about Yoko Ono, why I think she is a great feminist and activist and person. So let's get into it. All right, let's go. Yoko was born on February 18th, 1933 in Tokyo City to parents Isoko Ono and Isuki Ono, who was a wealthy banker and classical pianist. She feels like a Pisces to me. I'm like, oh, that that tracks. She's a total <laughs> water sign, 100%. And actually, what's interesting is Yoko actually means ocean child. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. isn't that cool? Yeah. You know the song, I wrote this in my notes somewhere, but I'll mention it now. You know the song Julia by John Lennon? Mm-hmm. There's a line in there where he sings about um, my ocean child and he's singing about Yoko in that part of the song. I think it's so interesting that we or you did John Lennon as a a problematic fave. Yep. And now we're doing doing Yoko. Yoko. Yeah. Because John Lennon, I mean. He sucks. He's (laughs) such a piece of shit. Like we've talked about it and it's so disappointing. It's so disappointing. But I, I 
but I love Yoko. Like, I'm sure, like, I know that, like, they both probably did a lot of problematic stuff because they're people from, like, the 60s and 70s. So I'm not saying that she's, like, an angel or anything like that. But I have, like, like, I like her. Like, I like her as a person where John, I just don't like. Right. And I think there's also, and again, like, I don't know a lot about Yoko Ono, so I'm interested to learn more about her. Right. But I think that there's also this, like, feminine urge to defend women who I feel like have been, like, wrongfully persecuted for a long time. And I feel like Yoko Ono is one of those. Like, there's a handful of people who I'm like... It's very misogynistic and also a little racist, to be honest. Because, like, the other Beatles partners never experienced the same vitriol. I mean, Yoko did have, like, a bed in Apple Studios and, like, she was around a lot, but... And she was more eccentric in a lot of ways. And I think that that made her an easy target. Yes, she was different in every definition of the word to, you know, the UK in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? This is interesting. Her maternal grandfather was a legit samurai and she comes from a long line of samurai warrior scholars of the Yasuda clan. Wow. Fuck yeah. When Yoko was being born, her father had been transferred from Japan to San Francisco, leaving his wife and the rest of his family behind. Because of this, she wouldn't meet her father until she was two years old. She remembers her father as a free-spirited man who loved music and playing the piano, but he didn't devote much of his time to her. Once when she told her dad she wanted to learn to play the piano, he told her she couldn't because she had tiny hands. She fired back at him saying she would be a composer then, but he only told her that would never happen as there were hardly any popular female composers. So her dad was like, they're real the damp in her blanket. Yeah, yeah, for real. And her mother was really harsh on her as well, chastising her for her looks a lot and things like that. So while I think she had a lot of love and respect for her parents, they sound like they were really, really hard on her. That's terrible. That is one thing, you know, I've had obviously like a lot of ups and downs with my parents as I think everybody does. Everybody has their own complicated relationships with their parents. But I will say that is like my parents were always so encouraging in that they were like, whatever you want to do, you can do it. Like you can achieve it and we'll help you achieve it. Yeah, totally. As shitty as my dad was, that was always still the thing. It was like, you want to do art? Great. You want to do acting? Great. You know, there was never any sort of, you know, backlash for me being who I was or anything like that. Her parents enrolled Yoko in piano lessons at the age of four, even though I guess her dad said that she wouldn't be able to. And she continued piano lessons until she was about 12 or 13. She also attended kabuki theater performances with her mother, who was trained in shamisen, kodo, I'm very sorry if I pronounced some of these wrong, atsuzumi, kotsumi, naguda, and could read Japanese musical scores. So her parents were also just like really smart and very cultured and like wanted their kids to be really cultured as well. But that's very interesting to me. Like if they're that smart and cultured, what would make them think that their child couldn't do anything that they wanted to do? You know? I don't know. Ego? I'm not sure. Yoko's dad was transferred back to Japan in 1937, so the family was finally living all together again. And there she enrolled in one of the most exclusive schools in Japan, which is called Gakushun, which is also known as the Peer School, which I will be referring to it as. In school, she was known as being outspoken, always asking questions, which was frowned upon in Japanese society at the time, where children were generally expected to be obedient in front of their elders. She said she never had any friends at school and was always terribly lonely. I feel you, girl. I was the loud, outspoken one that no one wanted to sit with at lunch, so I feel you. 
The family attempted to move back to the United States in 1940 and lived in New York for a short time until Yoko's dad was transferred yet again back to Japan. So she kind of grew up part-time between the U.S. and Japan, which probably also gave her a very, like, different perspective of the world. Well, yeah, and it's also difficult. As somebody who moved quite a bit growing up, like, that's hard as well. Like, yeah. when you don't feel like you're... Well, and her family was separated so mm-hmm. much because her dad had to leave for work and then they would try to catch up and meet him. And then it was just very tumultuous. She remained in Tokyo throughout World War II, where she survived the firebombing of March 9th, 1945, which I pulled up the whole separate Wikipedia page for that. It is an absolutely devastating event where the U.S. Air Force conducted a firebombing raid on the capital city, where more than 90,000 and possibly over 100,000 Japanese people were intentionally killed, most of them civilians, and one million were left homeless, making it the most destructive single air attack in human history. Wow. Absolutely horrible. During the attack, she sheltered with other family members in a special bunker. After that, starvation was rampant, and the Ono family began having to beg for food while pulling their belongings in a wheelbarrow. Yoko says that it was during this time that she developed her, quote, aggressive attitude and an understanding of what it meant to be an outsider. Her mother was also alone with the children during this time, and it was on her shoulders to feed and house them. It is believed that her father was taken as a prisoner of war in China at the time. Yoko discusses in an interview with Democracy Now! in 2007, saying her father was indeed in a concentration camp at the time. The rest of the family had no idea where he was for over a year. That's terrifying. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of instability in her childhood. Yeah, like within like feeling unstable within herself and who she was and feeling lonely and like an outsider, but then also externally with her family and war and and that kind of trauma. I mean, having to hide in a bunker. My God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Look at how much trauma we feel like we experienced just living during yeah. 9-11. And like she actually experienced, like was firsthand like experience. Yeah, with that kind of yeah. violence. Yeah. Okay. She was born in 33. So she would have been like 12 years old at the time. That's terrifying. Horrible. So scary. Yeah. After the war, she recalled going to the movies and noticing that all of the baddies, as she recalled them, were Asian leading her to wonder to herself, am I a baddie too? Mm -hmm. Which just makes me want to cry. Yeah, that reminds me of, you know, whenever I, um, I think her name was Anna Mae Wong, the actress. After Pearl Harbor, Yeah, I mean, she she specifically sought to avoid playing those characters because it was a huge stereotype. I mean, I think it's something that we definitely still see to this day, uh, using Asian Americans as like bad, you know, bad guy roles. But back then, especially like, it was constantly, it was and like, it's very, it was like propaganda. Yeah. It was you know? a huge stereotype that like a lot of roles for Asians in media or the way that they were depicted in media was either, um, as the bad guys, or if you were a woman, you the femme fatale. Kind yeah, of. yeah mm-hmm. exactly. Which I'm sure as a young girl, you're watching these movies and you're like, why am I being portrayed like that when I don't feel like I'm that type of person? Right. It would be very confusing. When the war ended in 1945, Yoko stayed in Japan while the rest of her family traveled to Scarsdale, New York. She returned to her school in 1946 to finish her education. When she was attending school, she took up vocal training in leader singing, which I think was part of what led her to her more unique style of singing or 
emoting, I guess, is kind of, I like to just, she's just emoting, you know, singing right. slash like, emoting, that, whatever that you want to call it. That is something that I will say. Again, no shade. It's, Don't want to listen art. to it. It's fine. Um, as a singer, I'm like. But that's the thing. And I talk about this later. I don't think she's singing. And I don't think she thinks of herself as a singer. To me, it's like she's letting she's it out a with performer. sound. Yeah, and she's letting out her feelings with these sounds right. okay. and these rhythms and things. So it's more about you having a an emotional response to it rather than it being this great piece of music. Right, she's an artist, not yes. necessarily a vocalist. A singer, yeah. yeah. And she's never said, like, I have this great singing voice or mm. anything like that. It's just, it's her art, you know? She graduated from the Pierce School in 1951 and was accepted into the philosophy program at the Pierce School University as the first woman to enter the department. And, however, she left the school after two semesters. But it was really cool. She's like, not for me. I know, but she was the first person to ever, like the first woman to apply to the philosophy program and the first woman to ever get in. Pretty badass. She joined her family in New York in 1952, where she enrolled in the infamously social and politically active Sarah Lawrence College. Yep. <laughs> Though her parents approved of the school she chose, they didn't love the company she kept. As Sarah Lawrence, she studied poetry, English literature, and musical composition, and was hanging out with like a bunch of artists and like hippie kind of types and things like that. Even in the 50s, the parents were kind of like, I'm not so sure about this for my daughter. In 1956, she left college and eloped with Toshi Ishianagi, who was a star in Tokyo's experimental community. Her parents, of course, didn't approve of the pairing and told her that if she continued to stay with Toshi, they would disown her. I don't think they do because she does stay with Toshi for a bit, but they really weren't happy about they it. They threatened it. They threatened Which is it. It's just, uh, I hate so that. So rude. Like, well, just parents, like, it drives me crazy because to this day, I think a lot of people have kids and they see their children as an extension of themselves. Right. Instead of their own person. Instead of their own individual person with their own personality. And it's like, hey, you don't get to decide what kind of person. I mean, you get a say in terms of like how you raise them and like, right. you, you and like try teaching and teach them, them the right morals. Right. But other than that, it's like you just you got to understand. <laughs> For real. And they really, really did not. In 1961, she became associated with the Fluxus Group, an international community of artists, composers, designers, and poets that was active during the 60s and 70s, and they were all incredibly eccentric. Fluxus founder George Masiunis admired Yoko's work and began promoting her, giving her her first exhibition at his gallery in New York. George then asked her to become an official Fluxus member, but she declined as she wanted to remain independent. From the beginning, her work was heavily criticized for being too progressive. At the time, she was determined to present her works and eventually found an inexpensive loft in downtown Manhattan and used the apartment as a studio and a living space. She allowed composer Lamonte Young to use the space as well for concerts. And together, they had a series of events at the loft from December 1960 to June 1961. She also reached a slightly larger audience in 1961 by performing at the 258-seat Carnegie Rectal Hall, smaller than the main hall at Carnegie Hall, in a concert that featured other experimental music and performances. Here, she presented Painting to be Stepped on, which was a scrap of canvas on the floor that became a completed art piece by people leaving their footprints on it. Well, that's kind of cool. Isn't it really cool? Yeah. Yoko felt that a work of art no longer needed to be mounted on a wall and so inaccessible. Instead, it could be interactive. 
In another piece, she set a painting on fire during the performance. You may be wondering, because I mentioned a while ago that she eloped and got married right. to that Toshi guy, right? Where'd so he go? Where'd the husband go? Well, they had been living separately for years and finally filed for divorce in 1962. After the when divorce, did they get married? They got married like in 59 or 60 or something and like lived apart their entire marriage and then got divorced. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, super weird. After the divorce, she moved back in with her parents and began suffering from clinical depression, leaving her briefly in the care of a Japanese mental institution, which I tried to look into what the what the care was what like. What the care was like then? I'm guessing it was not very good. She uh, attempted to take her own life. She was going through an absolutely horrible depressive episode after her depression and felt really stuck in this institution as well. But while she was there, she was visited by an American jazz musician by the name of Anthony Cox. Why? I'm not sure. He was like, let me go see this yeah. girl. Like <laughs> They don't explain that at all. Like, no, I couldn't find anywhere like why they started communicating during this time. But they did. And they would write letters and keep in touch. And he would visit her and all this kind of stuff. And um, he was actually the one that helped get her out of the clinic because her parents and family were the ones that wanted her to be in it and she was really unhappy. And so this guy, Anthony Cox, was able to help her get removed. Then the two of them got married and together they gave birth to a daughter, Kyoko Chan Cox, on August 8th, 1963. Unfortunately, their marriage also soon fell apart, but they stayed together for the sake of their joint careers. Anthony performed while Yoko lay atop a piano played by friend John Cage. <laughs> right? That's, that's her job? <laughs> at that time, yeah. Cox managed her publicity at the time, and she was extremely focused on her career, leaving most of the parenting to Anthony as well. She discusses, discusses at this time that she was, like, very career-driven. She was really working on her art a lot, and Anthony was much more of the parental figure for their daughter when she was first born and kind of, you know, regret regrets how self-centered she was on her work at the time, but that was just kind of her mindset. One time, she went with John Cage to the home of Paul McCartney, who was helping Cage with the book he was working on. She was there to obtain manuscripts of a Lennon-McCartney song, but Paul declined. He did say, however, that she may have better luck with his partner, John. He was right, as John gave Yoko the original handwritten lyrics to their song, The Word. John and Yoko officially met on November 9th, 1966, at the Indica Gallery in London, where she was giving a conceptual art exhibit. The two were introduced by gallery owner John Dunbar. John Lennon was not initially impressed with Yoko's work until he saw ceiling painting slash yes painting, which had a ladder with a spyglass at the top. And I'll add a picture of a lot of these pieces mm -hmm. to Instagram because they're really hard to describe, but really beautiful to look at. So there's this ladder and you're supposed to climb up it. So when John climbed up the ladder, he felt silly, but he looked through the glass and saw the word yes, and his attitudes changed. He felt that most conceptual art at the time was centered around being anti-something, but this was the first time he had experienced positivity, positivity from such an exhibit. Yeah, I actually really like that. Me too. He was also intrigued by the piece Hammer a Nail, where viewers hammered a nail into a wooden board, creating an art piece. Though the piece wasn't officially open, the ever-egotistical Beatle wanted to be the first to hammer a nail into the clean uh, board. Yeah, shocking. Right? Yeah. Yoko stopped him, and Dunbar asked her, don't you know who this is? He's a millionaire. He might buy it. 
She had supposedly never heard of the Beatles, but told John that he could only hammer in the first nail if he paid her five shillings. Do you believe that, that she'd never heard of the Beatles? I have a hard time believing that. I have a hard time believing it, but I believe that she wasn't a fan because I think she was too cool. Yeah. Beatle and Beatlemania was way too popular. I can believe that for sure. But like, you don't know who John Legend is. I mean, John Lennon. Come on. Did you say John Legend? I think I did. I think I might have, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) So she was like, yeah, I'll give this to you if you pay me five shillings. And John allegedly responded, I'll give you an imaginary five shillings and hammer an imaginary nail in. Which apparently like won her over or something. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Ladies, if a man speaks to you like that, walk away uh-uh. yeah but it's really it's weird in an interview in 2002 she explained that from the very first time she met him she was incredibly attracted to him they began corresponding with each other and john sponsored yoko's show at listen gallery in london in 1967 however john was still married to cynthia lennon mother mm-hmm. of julian at the time and yoko's still technically married right or are they divorced no they, they're well, divorced no she's still married she's okay. still married they're separated but they're still married When Cynthia asked John why Yoko was calling him so often, he replied that Yoko was only trying to obtain money for her avant-garde bullshit. So, like, totally telling Cynthia, like... Oh, God. John Lennon. Oh, for real. such a piece of shit. Like, you are lying to one woman and negging the other at the same time. You're going to love this next part. So, in in May of 1968, while Cynthia was away, he invited Yoko over to record a selection of avant-garde tape loops. After which, John said they made love at dawn. This is actually a really famous story. Like, I knew this story already before. These tapes would eventually be part of their first collaborative album, Unfinished Music No. 1, Two Virgins. When Cynthia returned home from vacation, she saw Yoko wearing her bathrobe, <gasps> sipping tea with John, who simply said to his wife, Oh, hi. <laughs> it's so shitty. It's so shitty. He's such a bad person. Can you imagine? And Yoko's probably just like, I'm fucking sorry. But like, did she know that? Oh, I'm sure she knew. I'm sure she knew he was married. Come on. He had a kid. All right. John wrote and recorded one of my favorites, Happiness is a Warm Gun, which contains many sexual references to his intimate moments with Yoko. So you can never hear that song the same way. Gross. Thanks for that. Ever again. (laughs) Cynthia and John were granted a divorce in November of 1968. But a few weeks prior, Yoko had miscarried a child with Lennon. So it was kind of a bittersweet moment for them. In December of 1968, the couple performed in the BBC documentary The Rolling Stones along with several other musicians. John performed the Beatles' rendition of Your Blues with an improvised vocal performance by Yoko rounding out the set. So I didn't know where else to put this in my notes, what we were discussing earlier, her kind of like different style of singing, I guess you could call Mm -hmm. it, vocalizing, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, But I feel like this is as good a time as any to discuss her singing voice and the vitriol she received because of it. So like I said, to me, it's not so much about her trying to sing well, but about her trying to emote what she's feeling sure. it with sound. Well, yeah. I mean, like, she seems like, kind of, yeah, she's an experimental artist. Like, yeah. she self-identifies that way. She classifies herself like that. Exactly. An article in The Guardian says it best. I thought that everyone knew that yelping, the groaning, is what she does. This is her thing. It's as essential to her performance as Jimi Hendrix burning his guitar. In another quote, the writer says, she was prepared to sound ugly, coarse, and at times frighteningly weird and didn't care if people liked it or not. And like that sentence to me made me love Yoko even yeah, more. That makes like, me that's like how her. I try to live my life. It's like, I'm going to do my thing. I don't care if you hate it. 
I'm very envious of people who have that kind of freedom. Like, Um, I do appreciate that about her. Definitely. So Yoko and Anthony Cox finally divorced in 1969, and it was followed by a very nasty, nasty custody battle in 1971, which actually led to Anthony abducting their eight-year-old daughter, Kyoko. He changed his daughter's name to Ruth Holman and raised the child in a cult known as the Church of the Living Word, or the Walk, which has been labeled as a boomer Christian cult. Oh, Yeah, so Yoko had won full custody of the child and Anthony, in retaliation, kidnapped his daughter. And for years and years, um, I think it was like somewhere from eight to ten years, Yoko didn't know where Kyoko was. Uh, John and Yoko would go searching to multiple countries trying to find her, get any information they could. Actually, if you listen to... um, the war is over. Happy Christmas. In mm-hmm. the beginning, um, Yoko whispers, happy Christmas, Kyoko. And John whispers, happy Christmas, Julian. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. It's heartbreaking. And they were eventually reunited together, but it was a really, really difficult time for her going through her daughter being abducted. Well, and I'm sure a very difficult time for Kyoko as well. Like, how do you... So confusing. You, you've had an entire childhood as someone else with a different name knowing only one parent, like, yeah. it would be very difficult to It then- seems like she's doing pretty well these days. She goes by Kyoko. I've seen pictures of her with Yoko together and mm-hmm. things like that, so it seems like they have good. a really good relationship now. During the final two years of the Beatles, John and Yoko created and attended protests against the Vietnam War and became incredibly politically active. Within their Two Versions album was the infamous photo of John and Yoko nude on the cover. That same year, Yoko worked with the Beatles on the White Album, adding vocals to the song Birthday, along with George's wife, Patty, and a lead vocal role on the song The Continuing Story of Bungalow Bill, making it the first occasion in a Beatles song where a woman performs lead vocals. Pretty cool. Right. And I'm sure all of this contributed to the vitriol that people had against Yoko. Like, Literally, my you know, next note and this, everybody, yeah. was the inception of the idea that Yoko Ono, quote, broke up the Beatles. Before Yoko, the Beatles had generally worked in isolation, rarely allowing visitors, wives, or girlfriends to attend recording sessions. Now Yoko becoming a pretty constant fixture of the Beatles' recording sessions started to rub fans the wrong way. But the way I see it, like, the four guys in the Beatles were like brothers. And when you're young and you're touring together and you're making all this music, your world is about that brotherhood, right? Right. But at this point, like especially during the documentary where they're discussing this kind of final year of them being together, they've got kids, they're married, they've got separate projects they're working on. Like they, all four of them had their own lives outside of the Beatles and they didn't rely on each other as much. And that's what people say is really what broke apart the Beatles, not the fact that Yoko was there. Well, I mean, and... Regardless of any of that, the Beatles were not destined to stay together. Like their personalities, like especially talking about like John and and Paul's personalities. Like well, John and Paul have like the biggest egos ever. Yeah, I think Paul has a more like innocent ego, where John could have a more like mean. He's more abrasive. Yeah, Yeah. like John is more abrasive, but Paul McCartney definitely. Paul just knows he's fucking amazing yeah like yeah. he knows how good he is and, and he people, knows he's usually right about decisions with stuff which can rub people the wrong way right but yeah, it um, comes across as dismissive yeah. a lot of the time but two people with personalities like that like it wouldn't have it's not like they were a band that was going to stay together forever no anyway but they literally loved each other 
for the rest of all of their lives and still do. They were brothers. You know what I mean? And that's the reason why you would think that a woman could come in. And there's a quote somewhere that I wrote where Yoko even says herself, like, I couldn't have broken them up if I wanted Wanted to, to. if I tried. Like, that wasn't up to me. It was up to them. But then also, you know, John was going through a very different time in his life. If you remember from forever ago when we talked, you know, he was very self-destructive and trying to better himself with Yoko. John and Yoko finally married on March 20th, 1969. birthday. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh yes and you i just think always about that. feel like i every time i hear that and her daughter was born on my mom's birthday August oh my 8th. gosh that's so funny yeah. Ooh, weird so many pisces Ooh. all right they spent their honeymoon in amsterdam again this is very famous campaigning with a week-long bed in for peace they planned another bed in to be held in the united states but they were denied entry to the country when and, when you know her childhood it makes so much more sense that she's such an advocate for yes. peace and it and it does make it feel very authentic because i think a lot of people I, I got the sense that a lot of people thought of Yoko Ono as being like inauthentic. Like, yeah, like and very like, performative you and know, weird for the sake of being, being weird. weird. Right. Yeah. Whereas I think that, you know, her beliefs and her ideals were actually real. Like, they were. You know, and I think she's the one that really changed John's perspective of the world and made him or tried to make him a more peaceful person. Like, I really think she had a very grounding presence in people's lives. So they weren't allowed to go to the United States to have a bed in. So they went to the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal where they recorded the song Give Peace a Chance and had another great bed in. John had actually credited Paul as co-writer of the song at the time, but later claimed it was Yoko who had written the song with him. On April 22nd, 1969, John legally changed his name from John Winston Lennon to John Ono Lennon, and the couple settled in Berkshire, England. Well, I love that. Right? Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. The couple then decided to start their own band and release their own music rather than have it be released through the Beatles. Thus, the Plastic Ono Band was born. Yoko released her first solo album, Yoko Ono slash Plastic Ono Band, in 1970 as a companion piece to her husband's John Lennon Plastic Ono Band, along with two companion album covers, one in which Yoko leans on John and one where John leans on Yoko. In 1971, she released a double album, Fly, with a track including Don't Worry, Kyoko, Mommy's Only Looking for Her Hand in the Snow, as an ode to her missing daughter. Mm. After the Beatles broke up in 1970, the couple lived in London until they moved permanently to Manhattan to escape the incredible racism from the media in London toward Yoko, which we know from... British media still today, they're incredibly racist and right, horrible. vicious. Yeah, I mean, so and vicious. I do think that there is... An envy. I, I feel like a lot of white women get very upset when they see something that's theirs in quotes, yeah. like John Lennon or Prince Harry. Um, I mean, that should yeah. belong to them. There's and actually they see there's a woman a, of color having what they think they should have. One hundred percent. There's a scene in Get Back where these there's these two like either young adult or teenage girls, like younger girls but old enough to like be on their own. They literally stand in front of the studio every single day just to see them walk in and walk out. And it's so weird. The documentarians like interviewed them and was like, why do you do this? And then asked about what they thought about Yoko. And one of the girls was like, well, it's really not up to me. Like, I don't care. And the other girl was like, I think they should break up. I really like John. Like and that you can just kind of see how people thought of her. Having those like parasocial relationships, as weird as it is. But but no one was coming after Linda McCartney. Right. You know, it's like, it's so bizarre. Yeah. 
So another reason why they went to New York was because John was being threatened to be deported due to drug charges on him in England as well. So they were like, we're the fuck out of Dodge. The couple briefly separated in July of 1973, and Yoko went on to pursue her career in Los Angeles and in other parts of New York, while John led an affair with personal assistant May Pang. Why did they separate? I don't really, I can't remember. John's a dick. I think I, I think huh. I talked about it in the John episode, but I can't remember what it was. But Yoko was like, yeah, go fuck May Pang, whatever. Like, I'm going to go do my thing. You have fun with your little whatever. Come back to me when you're done kind of situation. All right. Well, as John and May grew a stronger relationship, John wanted to buy a house with her and began to refuse to take Yoko's calls. After about a month of this, John agreed to meet with Yoko, who claimed to have found a cure for his smoking addiction. John never returned to May Pang after this meeting. When she called him the next day, Yoko told her John was unavailable. The separation between John and Yoko was over, but Yoko would allow him to continue to see May Pang as his mistress. The couple continued to live together in Manhattan in their Manhattan apartment called the Dakota. On October 9th, 1975, on John's 35th birthday, their son, Sean Ono Lennon, was born. They have the same birthday, and they look the fucking same. They do. They look a lot alike. After that, John and Yoko took a hiatus from the music industry, and John became a stay-at-home dad to care for his son. On the evening of December 8th, 1980, John and Yoko were in the studio working on Yoko's song, Walking on Thin Ice. When they returned to the Dakota, a fan named Mark David Chapman fatally shot John Lennon. Chapman had been stalking John for months and was allegedly angry at John for his religious conversion and comments about the Beatles being, quote, more popular than Jesus. Okay. Which he made those comments in like the early 60s. Like it didn't make any sense. It was like 20 years ago. The song the couple worked on that night was changed to be called Walking on Thin Ice for John. And that was released less than a month after his death. And it became Ono's first chart success, peaking at number 85. In 1981, she shocked the world when she released the album Season of Glass, whose album cover featured John's bloodied glasses next to a half-full or half-empty glass of water with the New York skyline behind it. And it really is. There's a, even a picture of her taking the picture and, like, the bloody glasses. and Oh, it's just it's a devastating image. In the album notes, she writes that the album is not dedicated to John because, quote, he would have been offended. <laughs> In her 1982 album art for It's All Right features Yoko looking toward the sun while on the back of the album artwork it shows the ghost of John looking over her and their son. In 1984, Yoko finished one of John's projects, a tribute album titled Every Man Has a Woman, featuring a selection of Yoko songs performed by artists such as Elvis Costello, Eddie Mooney, Roseanne Cash, and Harry Nilsson. Later that year, Milk and Honey, a mixture of unfinished songs written by John and Yoko, were released. To further commemorate the love of her life, she founded a construction and maintenance for the Strawberry Fields Memorial in Central Park, directly across from their home at the Dakota Apartments. Yoko still lives at the Dakota in the same apartment she had with John to this day. The residence was officially dedicated on what would have been John's 45th birthday on October 9, 1985. In her first non-Lennon-inspired piece, she came out with Star Piece. It was a concept album that was intended to be an antidote to Ronald Reagan's Star Wars missile defense system. <laughs> 
Fast forward to 2004, because I could talk about all the other shit, but we'd be here all night. <laughs> um, during the Liverpool biennial celebration, Yoko flooded the city with images on banners, bags, stickers, postcards, flyers, badges, and posters, one of a woman's naked breast and another of the same model's vulva. The piece was titled Mummy Was Beautiful and was dedicated to John's mother, Julia. According to Yoko, the piece was meant to be innocent, not shocking. She was attempting to replicate the experience of a baby looking up at his mother's body, those parts of the mother's body being a child's introduction to humanity. In 2007, she released the album Yes, I'm a Witch, which featured artists including The Flaming Lips, Cat Power, and Peaches. Two years after that, she returned to the place of her honeymoon, the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal, Canada, for the unveiling of the exhibition Imagine, the Peace Ballad of John and Yoko to mark the 40th anniversary of the couple's bed-in. Yoko has also been involved in activism surrounding HIV-AIDS awareness. She started the new Plastic Ono Band in 2009, putting out new albums. It should be obvious in the story of her life that Yoko lives a life of activism. Her participation in bagism that she did with John was commentary on society's importance on physical appearance and judgment of others. In the 70s, John and Yoko became close with many radical counterculture leaders such as Bobby Seale, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Michael X, John Sinclair, and Angela Davis. When John and Yoko appeared on the Mike Douglas show, taking over as host for the week, Yoko spoke at length about the evils of racism and sexism. She was outspoken in her support of feminism and openly bitter about the racism she experienced by music fans, especially in the UK. In 2004, she remade her song, Every Man, Every Woman, to support same-sex marriage, releasing remixes like Every Man Has a Man Who Loves Him and Every Woman Has a Woman Who Loves Her. Though she's done amazing things with and without the star power of John Lennon, the media depicts her as the evil female interloper who broke up the greatest band of all time. So in closing, hopefully 2021 will be the year that people stop hating Yoko Ono. Like I said, the new docuseries uh, Get Back on Disney Plus is making audiences rethink their idea of Yoko. Another Guardian article writer recently wrote how the world owes Yoko an apology. Blaming it on her constant presence was always an absurd, lazy accusation grounded in misogyny and racism. Absolutely. I mean, and we touch on this when we talked about John Lennon Mm -hmm. previously. Why are we putting the responsibility for this situation on Yoko? Like, don't you think if John didn't want her there, she wouldn't have been there? Exactly. Like, it's such a it's such a weird thing. That it wasn't like she was like, I have to be here. And it was against John's will. Right. We couldn't give any responsibility to John Lennon. Yeah. You know, and I feel like sometimes when celebrities become these like godlike figures and the Beatles were definitely that we overlooked all of their negative qualities. And I feel like that that was the case with John Lennon for a very long time. And so because it couldn't be his fault, it had to be someone else's. And you had this perfect scapegoat in this like weird, eccentric, (laughs) non-white woman, you know, um, who who really was was a perfect scapegoat. And also she lived a very unconventional life. And because and she was married, are uncomfortable. Yeah, and then also there was issues. You know, um, John and his first son Julian had a very strained relationship, where a lot of people blamed Yoko for that, which was completely unfounded. And you know, there were a lot of things that I think people blamed Yoko for when really it was John's decision making in his life. And she also lived very unconventionally. She was okay with her husband having a mistress and all these other things. Where I think that people can very easily point to those things and judge her as a person because of those. You know. 
now. Yeah, well, and yeah, people just have a hard time accepting people who will not conform. It makes people feel uncomfortable because it makes you and have to question... And that's the moral of the whole story. Yeah, it makes you have to question yourself and yeah. your own um, willingness to conform, yeah. right? And nobody likes looking at themselves like that. You, no. You know, and... So- so, I mean, in short, she's a great artist. Like, that's what great artists should do. Like, yeah. they should make you put your own life well, because under a microscope like that. She's this amazing, like, activist and smart, philosophical woman. You know what I mean? Like, you have to give her the respect where the respect is due. So, yeah. hashtag the hate is over. Like, I'm not, yeah, I'm yeah. not doing it anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've, I've felt that way about Yoko Ono for a long time. Like, yeah. I, I definitely bought into the, like... Oh, Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles. Well, you were a John girl, too, as a kid. Oh, I really was. I really, really was. Um, And then also, I... It, she, it was easy to kind of like make fun of Yoko Ono because of the way she sings oh my and God. stuff Her like that. performances, I can't. Right, where I can't like do it. you listen to it and you're like, oh, she sounds tone deaf. Like, what's going on here? What did John ever see in that? That was, the, right? I was like, the thing for me. Like, why did John want to be with her? Like, she sucks. And it's like, I think it's the thing is, is that- we didn't know what she was trying to do. Exactly. Right. I don't think anybody does. And it wasn't until I started reading about her that I was like, oh, like she's not trying to sing. It's right. like a whole other thing that she's doing. And, and I, but we're expecting her to be singing. I the older I get, the more I love women like this because the more I want to be like this. Like yeah. growing up as someone who was and still is, I work every day not to be a people pleaser and to live in my authentic true And to work at not self. being perfect. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's very difficult to let let go of that like identity. Um but I think it's so valuable to be able to do that. And I want to be able to do that more in yeah. my life. Like I, I want to be able to just be like, this is who I am. If you don't like it, that's, that's okay. But this is my life. Take it you or know? leave it. So, you know? Sorry. That wonderful. was so long. I literally had 15. Pages no, you're of good. Notes. <laughs> you're good. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's big give week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. 
So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so I am going to be talking about Precious Angel National Treasure, Betty White. Oh my God, yes, you are. Oh my God, this might be like my favorite episode. We're talking about like my two. I mean, I love, love the Golden Girls Uh and Betty White so much. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I love her. I I already like know. I read one of her biographies. She has like nine of them, but I'm like, I'm so excited. Okay, tell me all about it. Because the woman will be 100 next month everybody protect her yeah for for heaven's sake protect betty white and she was one of the i think she was the oldest uh cast she member was. on the golden Girls. yeah she was she was oh my god so betty marion white was born in oak park illinois on january 17th 1922 capricorn if anyone's keeping up love it um despite the fact that she would later go on to star in a show called life with elizabeth she has stated that Betty is her legal first name. She's I not love Elizabeth. That. Yeah. My I friend's dad is legally Teddy. Yeah. My grandpa is Johnny. He's not Jonathan or John. I He's love Johnny. It. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Betty was an only child, and when she was little, just over a year old in 1923, at the height of the Depression, she relocated with her parents to Alhambra, California. To make extra money, her father, who was an electrical engineer, would build radios and sell them wherever he could. And since it was at the height of the Depression uh, and hardly anyone had a sizable income, he would trade the radios in exchange for other goods, including dogs on some occasions. Well, because if I know one thing about Betty White is that animals... She loves those animals. ...are the most important thing in her Uh life. Yes, definitely. Loves her dogs. Mm Mm-hmm. Betty attended Beverly Hills United School District, and from a young age, she had a love for animals and the outdoors, and initially, she wanted to be a park ranger or zoologist, but was discouraged from these career paths because she was a woman, and at the time, women weren't allowed to be park rangers, so she... And she was not happy about that. No. No, it's sad. I mean, like, that was her... Life's dream. Yeah. She discovered a love of writing while attending Horace Mann Elementary School. Um, it might have been a combination elementary, junior high. It's kind okay. of difficult to say. So I'm not exactly sure how old she was here. But yeah. um, she wrote and played the lead in her graduation play. And it was then that she discovered and it was then that she discovered a love of performing. She graduated Beverly Hills High School in 1939 and began her television career just three months later when she and a classmate sang songs from The Merry Widow on an experimental television show. I love that. That's like the same time The Wizard of Oz came out, too, which is wild. So uh, it's when you think about how long this woman's been alive, it is like so The Wizard of Oz came out in 1939. So when she graduated high school was when that movie came out and she was living in Hollywood during that time. I don't know. You know how my brain works. (laughs) Everything is in relation to Wizard of Oz. What am I wearing? Wearing a Wizard of Oz sweater right now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, She found work modeling and then went on to work in professional theater at the Bliss Hayden Little Theater, which is now known as the Beverly Hills Playhouse. Yes. Huge theater. Should be called the Betty White Playhouse. Honestly, whatever. I hope they change the name. When Probably world- when she dies, but I don't want to say that out loud. Uh, <laughs> never. Never. 
When World War II broke out, Betty put her career on hold and volunteered for the American Women's Voluntary Service, where she transported military supplies through California and participated in events designed to entertain the troops before their deployments overseas. Honestly, that was like a thing that I loved as a kid. There was a lot of like USO, USO like mm-hmm. movies and stuff that yeah. were made of just like actors performing for the troops and yeah. things like that. And I was like, that if I had to be in the military and be drafted, like that's the gig I want. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like she ever went overseas. She stayed in California. Yeah. Uh, but like, but she worked would, in the effort. Yeah, yeah. She would perform like while they're in training or whatever, like before they get deployed at their ports or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After the war, she was determined to revive her career in entertainment, but was turned down from all the major studios because they considered her to be not photogenic. Yet she was a model before. That's exactly right. I know. I was just like, okay. But I guess back then. I mean, standards changed. The standards may have changed, but also I think modeling was more, it was like life modeling. So it was more about your body and the way you moved than it was about your face. Whereas like, um, you know, studio films, they had a very specific type of woman that they wanted to star in these like, Right. So she wasn't the she didn't fit into like the little box of what. Right. And there weren't a lot of women in comedy at the time. So it was was mostly just like you had to be this like very glamorous. Yeah. Looking woman. You had to be like Ava Gardner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I imagine that this was probably a blow to her self-esteem, but uh, she began looking for radio jobs instead. She was like, okay, well. I got a face for radio, baby. Exactly. She's like, just like we got faces for podcasting. (laughs) Just kidding. We're both gorgeous. Amen. Although I do like that we can just uh, literally I'm wearing like no piece of clothing. I'm wearing matches right now and I don't have a bra on. That's not true. Your socks match your sweater and you kind of look like you're going to be in an 80s workout video in the best way. Yeah. Like an off the shoulder sweater. And like I'm literally wearing leggings like capri leggings because with a curly high pony you look adorable (laughs) don't even don't even go there with me thank you okay um so she began looking for jobs in radio and she booked gigs reading commercials and playing bit parts making about five dollars a show Hmm. so she worked her way up in radio and was eventually offered her own radio show the betty white show and in 1949 she landed a regional television gig appearing as co-host with al jarvis on his daily variety show hollywood on television Mm -hmm. when jarvis left the show in 1952 betty took over as host of the show like she just waited that shit out oh yeah wasn't she like one of the first women to like host their own show or something like that too? I don't know if she was the first, but I want to yeah. say I remember it being like I imagine she was one of the first. I an don't uncommon know that thing. She was the first, but she was certainly one of the first. Yeah. Yeah. So the show aired six days a week and was almost entirely ad-libbed, which thinking about that now, I'm like the amount of improv to have a show that's airing six days a week. Yeah. Um so between sketches, Betty would also sing at least a couple of songs during each broadcast. She so didn't it's stop. Ton. Yeah, it's like crazy amount of performing. Betty was nominated for an Emmy for her work on the show, and it was the very first year a category for women on television existed. Wow. And she was nominated. Go, Betty. The same year she began hosting Hollywood on television on her own, she founded Bandy Productions, where she became one of the first women producers in Hollywood. Woo! Together with writer George Tibbles, Betty launched her first TV series, Life with Elizabeth, The show's premise came from a sketch that she had done previously on Hollywood on television. So I love the idea of that. Like, 
life with Elizabeth was like a character that was recurring, kind of like SNL. You know how like yeah. there are SNL characters that end up having their own like movies. It or also whatever. made me think of the fact that Keenan and Kel came out of all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean. It's like those characters that become so beloved. Ted Lasso was like that too. It was like an NBC character that Jason Sudeikis did and they were like this is great so they made a whole series about it yeah you know? and I love that it's like this is a character she created like she had complete creative control which totally. is and really it, cool and it was her show her own production mm-hmm. company like she yeah. ran that shit yeah in 1952 she won a Los Angeles Emmy for her work on Life with Elizabeth is that different than like a regular Emmy I, I think so or I don't know if it's maybe like morphed and changed because like sometimes yeah, the names of things the change yeah Anyway, it's a fucking Emmy. Yeah, it's an Emmy. <laughs> it counts. Um, Life with Elizabeth ran nationally from 1952 to 1955, and Betty was among only a very, very small handful of women who had full creative control, both in front of and behind the camera. And her I think and Lucille Ball, that's really. That's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. Is I think it's it's pretty much just her and Lucille Ball, and her and Lucille Ball were very good friends. Yeah. Like, they definitely supported each other. They recognized, Which, like, like, thank God, you know? flames, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and they, I mean, their sense of humor and everything was so similar, and I'm glad that they were able to see that they had to lift each other up rather yeah, than, like... Yeah, compete. Compete and be mm-hmm. the only female production company that's successful, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, during this time, Betty made guest appearances on such TV shows as the United States Steel Hour and Petticoat Junction. She was also a regular guest on The Tonight Show. Betty has been a guest on The Tonight Show through like so many Tonight Show so hosts. So many hosts. Yeah. And like this guy loved her. I didn't write down he, who the host I was at this time. I don't was, remember who yeah. it was. But he loved her he put her on all the time like everybody who met Betty just really liked her she just had that kind of personality that was genuinely likable yeah um has wow Jesus Christ I know I know God, knock on some wood immediately like I hope nothing happens before this episode goes out my god please In 1954, Betty hosted and produced her own daily talk slash variety show called The Betty White Show. It's a different show also called The Betty White Show. Yeah. um, On NBC. Like her sitcom, Betty had creative control over the series and she used her authority to hire a female director, which was a bold move at the time. Huge move. She also included an African-American performer as a regular cast as a regular cast member, a man named Arthur Duncan. The show faced criticism for this when NBC expanded it nationally. Mm-hmm. Local Southern stations threatened to boycott unless Duncan was removed from the series. Betty, never one to be told what to do, responded by saying, I'm sorry, live with it. Yep. <laughs> this is actually, I don't know if you've seen this on social media or anything, but within the last few years, that story has, has circulated, be, has circulated yeah. a lot. Pictures of the two of them together and being like, another reason we love Betty White and because of her response to that, like, deal with it. Yeah. I mean, and the thing was, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, she was never like, like, she was never super outspoken politically. No, right? she's not like an activist type of right. person per but se. But she lived, her activism was in how she lived her life. Exactly. Like, that's how, like, you know, she used her authority to pull other people up. Yep. Which is the best thing you can do. Yep. Like, she... She walked the her, walk. Yeah, <laughs> she walked her... Uh, yeah, she walked the walk. She worked her ass off. And then when she walked through a door, she left it open for other people instead yeah. of slamming it shut behind her, which mm. is, like, such a beautiful thing. It is. Um, 
So she told them to live with it and then gave Duncan more airtime. Because of this, the network felt pressure to move Betty's show, which had initially been a big success, to new, less desirable time slots repeatedly. So it just kept moving the show around, which is not good. I mean, yeah, people, especially back in the day, it wasn't like you could just like watch it next day on Hulu. Like you had to know when your show was airing in order to watch it. Well, then also if it wasn't during a desirable time, like maybe it was when like during dinner time mm-hmm. or maybe yeah. it was too late. So the family isn't going to be sitting around right. the TV. And then if you don't see it, then you don't see it. Right. And then if it's moving around repeatedly, it's yeah. like, how are you going to find it? You're going to give up. Like, yeah. you know, you're not just going to keep trying. Yeah. So, so they were setting it up to fail. Yeah. Eventually the show suffered lower viewership. And by the end of the year, NBC canceled the series. So, I mean, she really was willing to sacrifice her show. She legit lost her show mm-hmm. for her convictions. Right. Yeah. Betty continued to work in television and on stage throughout the 50s and by the 1960s was a staple on network game shows. Oh, because Betty loves games. She loves game shows. Did you read the interview when shutdown first had like lockdown first happened? Everybody was like super worried about Betty White. And so like I think it was People Magazine that like contacted her assistant and got a statement saying like, She's got a big book of Sudoku. Like, she's okay. She's fine. She's got Sudoku and her dog, and she's living her best life. She's yeah. fine. <laughs> she absolutely, like, she is named the queen of game shows later on because she just loved appearing. Yeah. Where I think a lot of other celebrities kind of see appearing on game shows consistently as kind of, like, tacky. Well, she like, likes, she loved it. She loves games, and she loves how smart she is. Like, there's so many stories of her playing certain like mind teaser games with Rue McClallahan mm-hmm. in between takes of Golden Girls and things like that. And they would always try to like keep each other's minds sharp or whatever. And I'm like, that's so cute. Yeah, adorable, <laughs> adorable. In the late 60s, NBC offered Betty an anchor job for the very first rendition of the Today Show. But Betty turned it down because she didn't want to relocate to New York. Mm. The job ultimately went to Barbara Walters. Wow. Can you imagine? Yeah. If Betty had taken it, we wouldn't have Barbara Walters the way we do now. Oh, my God. Can you imagine what it would have been like if if Betty White was giving all those Barbara Walters specials? So weird. It'd be so different. It'd be so different. (laughs) Yeah. Funnier. Yeah. Uh, In 1973, Betty began appearing as the, quote, man-hungry and sickeningly sweet character (laughs) Sue Ann Nivens on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Which is why she was originally going to play Blanche on Golden Girls. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on your toes there. (laughs) While the role earned Betty her second and third Emmy Awards, and she considers it to be a highlight in her career, she also criticized the character's feminine passivity as a happy homemaker type because it wasn't really who she was. No, you know what I mean? she was a hardworking bitch. And it was very clear that like it, it was a stereotype that she was playing, but yeah. she played it with so much wit and like cleverness and comedic timing, you know? Yeah. She did a great job. Like, I feel like if another actress had played that role, it would have come across as a very like passive and almost bland character. But exactly. because it was Betty White, the character had like more dimension. Yeah. 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 Betty's interest and passion for animals never waned. And in 1971, she became a trustee of the organization, the Morris animal foundation, which is a nonprofit animal health charity that funds advances in veterinary medicine and veterinary research for companion animals. She would later go on to serve as their president over three decades later. So she was a trustee for 30 years, more yeah. than 30 years. 
Around this time, she hosted a series called The Pet Set, which spotlighted celebrities and their pets. I wish that show still existed. I would watch I bet it there's every week somewhere, and I bet you they're amazing. Oh my god! Um, she has been a member of the board of directors of the Greater Los Angeles Zoo Association since 1974. That's the only thing that I'm always kind of like, um, yeah, because I don't you love support zoos. a lot of zoos. I don't, I don't love them either. But I do think that she is coming from a conservation perspective and yes. standpoint like and I, I think also our views of zoos have changed, changed drastically like and relatively recently you right. know what I mean we have to keep in mind that Betty White is uh, almost 100. almost 100 years old yeah. yeah yeah um she donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to the organization donating $100,000 to the zoo in the month of April 2008 alone wow in Whoa. 1983 she became the first woman to win a Daytime Emmy Award in the category of Outstanding Game Show Host for the NBC entry Just Men. Mm. In 1985, Betty scored her signature role as Rose Nyland on The Golden Girls. From good old uh, Minnesota. From what, Minnesota. Why can't I think of the St. Olaf? My friend yeah. actually went to St. Olaf College, which I think is funny. She's... Like, I love the show. She is the highlight of the show. Like, to me. Like, I just think she is so... I like... Of course, Blanche is a riot. Like, and so I much fun. I love B. Arthur. I feel like I would hate her as a person, but as a performer, I love her. You think you would hate B. Arthur as a person? B. Arthur hated Betty White. Oh, geez. She was real... Oh, she was nasty to Betty the entire time the series was on. They did not... She thought she was too, like, bubbly and happy all the time, so she couldn't stand Betty White. Oh, oh. Yeah. Um, so initially, as Madigan said, they wanted her to play the role of Blanche Devereaux and Rue McClanahan to play Rose. Uh, but the two women felt those characters were too similar to roles they had played in the past and were able to convince the director to let them switch. So Rue McClanahan had played a character where she was very kind of like demure, meek and demure. Um, and as I said earlier, Betty had played a character that was this kind of like man-eating sort of And I believe they were on a show together where they played those roles too. And that was another thing where they were like, we don't want to do another show together where we're playing the same I don't know. I didn't read that, but that's quite possible. I could be wrong. But the director was absolutely on board with it. Which is amazing too. Yeah, he was like, yeah, just switch. (laughs) Yeah. And and like that's what made, I mean, the show is so perfect. I fucking love the Golden Girls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Betty was the oldest of the Golden Girls. B. Arthur was a few months younger. And Estelle Getty, who played the mother, who was supposed to be the oldest character on the show, um, was actually a year younger than Betty. Fun so, fact, she got a facelift after the first season and the makeup artists were so pissed at her because they had to put more prosthetics yeah, on her. They're like, hey, the whole point is <laughs> that you're, you're supposed, supposed to look older. Super old. um, but yeah. And of those four, she is the only surviving cast member yeah. uh, and, again, is was the oldest. The show ran from 1985 to 1992 and was immensely successful. Betty won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Actress in a Comedy Series for the first season of the show and was nominated in that category for every year of the show's run. Mm-hmm. And she was the only cast member to do so. So Estelle Getty was also nominated for an Emmy every year of the show's run, but she was nominated in the Supporting Actress category. Okay. So they were both nominated every year, but Betty was nominated for Outstanding Actress every year. Wow. It's almost like Modern Family when they were just winning everything. Yeah, they were just nominated constantly. (laughs) Yeah. 
1987, the American Veterinary Medical Association awarded her with its Humane Award for her charitable work with animals. Mm. In 1992, she was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame. It would be impossible to list all of Betty's credits after Gilmore Girls wrapped, but she Gilmore nev- Girls? Oh, God. <laughs> Golden Girls. Wow. I even wrote that. It's not even like I wrote it wrong. I just said it. I read that. It's and two said G's. Gilmore, Gilmore Girls. Girls, Golden Girls. Wow. Potato, um, potato. But it would be impossible to list all of her credits after Golden Girls wrapped, but she never stopped working. That's something that I think is incredibly impressive yeah. about Betty White is she has worked consistently. It's not like she like went away for long spans and like came back, revived no. her career. Like she has worked consistently, um, guest starring on shows like Suddenly Susan, The Practice, and Boston Legal throughout the 90s and early 2000s. The city of Los Angeles further honored her for her philanthropic work with animals in 2006 with a bronze commemorative plaque near the gorilla exhibit at the Los Angeles Zoo. So oh my God, I have to check that it's out. It's there right now. Yeah. I don't want to go to the zoo, but Me I want to see but, that. <laughs> but you know what you can do? You can go, um, like I went a few years ago, the zoo does like a light thing. Yeah, for Christmas. For Christmas. Yeah. So you can go then and then you can check out the plaque. There you go. In 2010, at the age of 88, Betty became the oldest person to host Saturday Night Live and later that year starred in TV Land sitcom Hot in Cleveland. She also launched her own clothing line that year and all the proceeds went to various animal charities. On November 9th, 2010, the USDA Forest Service, along with Smokey Bear, made Betty White an honorary forest ranger, fulfilling her lifelong dream. Which is just like, (laughs) so sweet. And you know, she had said that she couldn't be a forest ranger because women weren't allowed to um, be rangers. But when she received this honor, more than one third of Forest Service employees were women. Wow. In 2011, she served as a presenter at the American Humane Hero Dog Awards in Beverly Hills, which I just thought was cute. Little Beverly Hills Dog Award. (laughs) A 2011 poll conducted by Reuters revealed that Betty White was considered the most popular and most trusted celebrity among Americans, beating out the likes of Denzel Washington, Sandra Bullock, and Tom Hanks. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And still, it. I mean, everybody who doesn't Betty. like Betty White. Like, who doesn't? A soulless, heartless person. Right. In 2012, she won her first Grammy Award for a spoken word recording of her bestseller, If You Ask Me. That's the one I read. (laughs) I'll give it to you if you want to read it. I would love to read it. It's an easy read. It's fun. And won the UCLA Jack Benny Award for comedy, recognizing her contribution to comedy in television. A television special, Betty White's 90th birthday party, aired on NBC a day before her birthday on January 16th, 2012 the show featured appearances from many stars who she'd worked with over the years and also a message from the sitting president barack obama in january of 2013 nbc again celebrated betty white's birthday with a uh with a tv special featuring celebrity friends and that aired on february 5th i wonder if they're gonna do a 100th birthday this year i bet you they will i hope they do yeah i hope they do too but i mean like, imagine being so beloved that people, like... Like, a whole network is devoting time for you. To celebrate you know? your birthday. Yeah. In 2017, after 70 years, White was invited to become a member of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. She was 95, and this made her the oldest new member at the time. 
Betty, like many women of her time, uh, keep in mind. So this is the thing. Betty was in her late 30s, early 40s when like the second wave of feminism was happening, yeah. which is a wild thing to think about because it was so long ago. Right. Um, but she was really like she was in her late 30s. So I think a lot of women at this time, you know, um, Judge Judy is the same way. Like there's a lot of older women who don't associate themselves with the word feminist. Right. And Betty White has never claimed to be a feminist. And I think she's also expressed some, she's criticized some feminists. um, Which I can, I mean, I think is pretty common for women of that era. Right, right. I mean, but she's never called out any specific people. And I actually understand what her criticism was, right? Like she kind of felt offended because she did an interview where um, this woman basically said like, your portrayals of women in like the fifties were those stereotypes were like detrimental. Like, what do you have to say about that? But she even agrees with that. You know what I mean? But I can understand where that's kind of like one, it wasn't her decision for the most part Two, those are the roles that were given and were available because that's what women were at the time. They were housewives and things like that. So that's what we'd see on TV. Right. So it's hard to kind of like put right. that all on Betty and she has spoken on that. You right. Know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do think that there is something to be said about, and this is kind of what she said about laying a third wave feminist mindset. Cause this interview took place in like the nineties. Right. Uh-huh. Um, in laying the, that kind of mindset on a woman who was trying to work in this very limited field in the 1950s. Yeah. You know, in she the early 50s. It, so she has a different perspective too. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, but she's never shied away, you know, with all of that being said, with like, you know, I can understand her feeling defensive about... I believe Dolly Parton has a lot of, has said a lot of the same yeah, things. Yeah, kind of similar, you know? similar stuff. But they're like such feminists, you know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. But they might not, they might not identify with what they think a feminist is. Right, you know? and, and to be fair, Betty White has never said she's not a feminist. Uh, totally, yeah. She's just said that um, she 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 didn't like that line of questioning where she felt like she was somehow being like belittled because because she took a role so she could work right because they're saying that the roles that she um played were harmful to women that right. those stereotypes were harmful to women when i'm sure she feels like she's done a lot for women yeah you know um but she's also never shied away from talking about how being a woman in the industry made things more difficult for her coming up and always used her position, like I said, of power and authority to open the door for others behind her. Yeah. So her actions very much feel to me like the actions of a feminist. You know? Yes, definitely. And whether she claims the title or not, she is a feminist icon and role model she's broken through not only gender barriers but also challenged ageist standards in an industry that is constantly trying to put women over 30 out to pasture yeah and older women in general in life oftentimes the complaint is that the older you get as a woman the more you feel like you're disappearing yeah where you feel like you're not being seen and she made sure she continued to be seen yeah in media um well, she's Constantly. just, yeah. she just like loves to work. And like, that's why she never had kids too. Like she married her husband very young. And like, I never even considered 
Betty being married or having a husband or anything until I like read her book because her husband really wasn't like that involved in the spotlight or anything. And she was so in love with her career and her work that she never had kids, which was a very rare thing at the time for a woman to choose to have a work life instead of being a mom. Right. And you I know, think- so like she lived the example of what it means to be a feminist because she really just made all of the choices that were best for For her. her. And that's kind of, that's what I was about to say as well is like, she might not claim the title. Um, and that interview might suggest otherwise that she did, but I really understand why she would be frustrated with that line of questioning for her, because it's so clear that in her personal life, she did everything she needed to do. Like she, was one of the first women to have creative control of her projects. Yeah. And she not only advocated for herself, but she advocated for other marginalized people as well. Yep. She prioritized her happiness. Right. You know, the, like, the interviewer was looking at strictly these very narrow s- some kind select of, roles she had mm-hmm. in the 50s rather than looking at her career as a whole and the amazing things that she's done. But I mean, on that same note, I think that, you know, even for me growing up, when I heard of a feminist, I thought of like bra burning, super radical, which now I'm like, fuck yeah. But right. yeah, but to me, that was like kind of a scary thing when I was like young little Catholic girl. So I could understand too for a lot of people where they were older during the time of the second wave where it would seem a little bit like, oh no, don't clump me in with those crazy bra burning bitches. Like, right, no way. Right. I mean, and yeah, we're talking third wave when this interview was done as yeah. well. And I haven't been able to see anything else like if you google Betty White feminist there's not a lot that comes up like there's like that article basically and there's like a Miss Magazine article saying that talks about that article and says like guess what she's a feminist anyway yeah Um, there's that kind of thing Miss Magazine knows what's up yeah but there's not there's not a lot after that so yeah we also don't have a reference point for whether or not her her ideas changed around the idea of feminism. Right. Because that was... She's not vocal about it. And that was 20 years ago now. Right. You know, like that was a long time ago that that interview was done. So it's kind of... It was more than 20 years ago. So it's kind of an interesting thing. But we love Betty. I I love love Betty. Betty. I loved learning about her. I think she is so like precious. You know, She just radiates everything positive. And that's what I love about her. And, And like that's why for me like... Golden Girls is one of my bedtime shows. I turn it on when I have my coffee in the morning and I don't, don't know what else to watch or listen to because I know every time I do, it's just like it's like getting into a warm tub. It's yeah. just comforting. Yeah. And, you know, she also radiates authenticity. I think yes. we've talked about two women who are very much authentically themselves in very different ways. Yeah. You know, there's one that is more conventionally acceptable than the other, but I I feel like they are both very authentically who they are and yeah. unapologetically who they are. Yeah, and they're not setting up their lives to necessarily be activists, but they've lived out these lives that have made them so, you know? Yeah, and I think that's such a good testament. I think this whole episode is a good testament to why it's important to live authentically yeah. because that's when you're going to have the most genuine impact on people. And the most success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, this is one of my favorite episodes we've done in a while. This was so much fun for me. Um, If there are any feminists that you would like us to discuss that we haven't 
uh, talked about yet, we are more than willing to be taking your topic suggestions for that. So please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. I also want to remind you all again that we have a merch store. If you're interested in picking up any of your Angry Neighborhood Feminist merch, you can go to the link in our bio and check out all the different designs we have there. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the fellow listeners on the group page. Last but certainly not least, if you haven't done so already, please leave us a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. It helps us out so much, and it really does make our day. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to to rage on. Bye. If you had the chance to sit down and speak with the smartest robot in the world, would you? Spark Hunter, a new fighter steel production presented by Realm, explores what that kind of conversation might look like. It's 2044. The world's most advanced AI has gone rogue, and only her maker knows the true danger she poses to the world. When they meet over dinner, the NSA and the president are listening in, and sharpshooters are in position. The robot is having a dark existential crisis. To protect his deep secret, did her brilliant maker create the problem that now threatens the world? A conflict-filled, psychological thriller set in the near future, Spark Hunter pits a beautiful robot that's becoming more intelligent, more human, and more difficult to control, against the institutions who are determined to decommission her. It's a creative take on the real questions our world has about advancements in artificial intelligence, and features a star-studded cast, including Mark Rylance, Rebecca Ferguson, Elliot Sumner, Vanessa Redgrave, and Richard E. Grant, with Charles Dance and Sting. Listen and subscribe to Spark Hunter wherever you get your podcasts, or visit realm.fm for more information.